Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hey, y'all, it's Justin Richmond. Today on the show, we're talking to Stuart Murdoch and Stevie Jackson from the Scottish folk pop band Bell and Sebastian. The band formed in 96 after meeting through a government-funded class for unemployed musicians. It soon became a showcase for Stuart Murdoch's catchy melodies and witty stories about the everyday lives of Scottish Bohemians. Inspired by the sounds of the 60s, like The Beatles, Paul Simon, Burt Bacharach, their music has been described as perfect chamber pop music. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlund talks to Stuart and Stevie about writing and recording their latest and 10th album, A Bit of Previous. Stewart also talks about how getting sick at 21 was a critical moment in the start of his music career. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Stewart and Stevie. You've got a new album coming out. Can you tell me a little bit about the making of this album? Because it was done during the pandemic. How did that affect how you did the album, where you did the album? How did all that shake out? We had our bags packed for Los Angeles and we were ready to go. And this was back in the spring of 2020. Of course, the pandemic happened. We were locked down. So for the first six months or so, we didn't do anything. Everybody was locked in. Uh, you know what it was like. Um, by that time, we decided, you know what, this is going to take a while. So we gave up the idea of going to L.A., Chris, the band, and also Brian, who's our engineer upstairs, we all decided to renovate the studio, turn the studio into a, a proper recording studio rather than just a rehearsal place. And uh, we made extra rooms 
uh, we made little booths so that it could be safe, so that we could work safely in pandemic time. It took a whole year for us to start recording with a vengeance because it was another surge in the pandemic. By that time, the song lineup had changed, but that was quite nice. I'd written quite a few new songs and so we brought them in really in a raw state. The beauty part of that was that instead of preparing to go to Los Angeles and having everything written, we had more time and we could make it up as we went along. So how many songs did you have written for L.A.? It's kind of hard to say. Stevie, do you remember the pool of songs we had for L.A.? No, it's too long ago. There's probably maybe a nebulous pool of about 15 or or 20, but I think maybe probably 10 of those got ditched along the way Hmm. somewhere. Is that typical for you to go into an album with sort of that many songs ready to go? I think, yes, I think that's probably about the top number. And and actually, we've done records in Atlanta. We've done two in L.A. We usually try to record about 17 or 18 Mm -hmm. because they're usually needed. But also it makes a better album if you've got songs to choose from. You know, things ended up very differently. Like I said, we kind of left a lot of songs. A lot of the songs went off the boil and didn't seem too appealing anymore and then new ideas sprang up and because we were hands-on between the band and Brian we were producing ourselves we could invent new techniques and new ways of working and go back to our roots all that kind of stuff. So I'm interested tell me which songs on the album now are the the new songs the songs you developed after you initially thought you were going to be recording in LA. Sure so the first song Young and Stupid And then I think if they're shooting at you, might have been a a germ, but the words came along late on. And then certainly Profits on Hold, that just came up on a day in the studio and was talked to me quite a late one as well. Stevie, can you remember? I can't remember. That was a tune that Sarah brought in. And what about your own tune? That was quite a late addition as well. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Which was called? Deathbed of My Dreams. That's a beautiful song, by the way. Oh, thank you. That was during the process of being here, I think. Did it end up being different than a traditional Bell and Sebastian album that that more was worked out in the studio, as opposed to you coming and the writers saying, here are the songs and choosing from those? I think we've been loosening up for a few years now. Uh, We recorded a bunch of EPs in Glasgow previous to this. And on that occasion, that was almost like a dress rehearsal for this record. We were trying different approaches, building songs up from scratch. We were meant to be working with Sean Everett in California. And we were very prepared to meet him halfway. And I think it would have been such a different record. We we might have ended up writing to order. There's a songwriter I'm affected by the environment you find yourself in. I think we would have ended up writing songs, especially for his production. Mm -hmm. You are such a prolific songwriter and the band is so productive. Was this the longest hiatus you'd had away from songwriting during your career? I wouldn't say it was a hiatus away from songwriting at all, as far as I'm concerned. The longest gap that we had was around about 2006 to 2010 or something like that. I went away to make a movie, but I was working on music and Stevie was working on music. He did a solo LP, so everybody was still working. You know, a song I was interested in a lot was uh, Profits on Hold. And, And naturally, when I saw the title, I thought, well, is this pandemic related? Because, of course, everybody was on hold. That's an angle that I never thought about. It was just a, a song that popped up in the studio. But then again, you take in everything, everything that's going on. And 
it percolates. Songs just come out. So it's, it seems to be unrelated to what is actually going on outside. Maybe, in fact, the experience of lockdown did infect or affect this song the way it came out. But uh, I, I'd never thought about that. Can you play a few bars of it? Yeah, there's a slight um, caveat here. What happens with my songs is that we construct the songs in the studio and the band comes in and colours in. Once we get into the production and, and we get into the song making, I forget. I never have it under my fingers. I've never played this song from start to finish, you know, especially this one. So obviously we have to learn to play this song when we come to the concert. What I'm basically saying is that me and Stevie are just trying to learn how to, to play a few bars <laughs> for you just today. Yeah. So We don't actually know it, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have a go. Uh, can I call you sometime? Talk it out on the phone. We don't have to be lovers. We could be less alone. It's a rough, rocky road And it's gonna get steep I just wanted your soft tone To allow me to sleep And I sometimes confuse You forgot or angel you're just a person Sometimes confused I got glory in my mind A soft summer unwinds Well, you guys are quick learners. That was terrific. We were kind of like, I'm looking at the, the chord sheets and uh, for the listeners, that probably kind of replicates the idea of what happened when we brought the song in at first and we were just feeling the chords. Was that purely a musical idea you had and then added the lyrics or did the, the lyric come at the same time? More regularly for, for me, the words and the lyrics will come at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's Sometimes it's not a strong urge to say something lyrically at first. It's more likely to be a musical idea, da, 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 da. you know, I'll, and then immediately I'll I'll try. Can I call you sometime? And you might even think that that would start off as a a scratch lyric that you would replace later. Talk it out on the phone, but uh, but quite often your your first lyrics end up as the actual song itself. It's got a great rhythm on the record. It's got the same kind of bounce as The Sound of Breaking Glass by Nick Lowe, if you know that song. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah. How does that one go, Stevie? <clears throat> I love the sound of breaking glass. <laughs> there you go. You can learn his songs even faster. That's amazing. And because I love the title so much, Profits on Hold, I mean, are you sitting around somewhere and you've got a notebook and you think of the phrase Profits on Hold or are you on the phone and you just write it down thinking, I'm going to use that at some point. When did that occur? I take note of titles and then sometimes they lie for years and then they become songs later on. That was a case of that came out in the lyric that day, uh, just as I was writing underneath your thin skin, we are prophets and hold. That occurred to me that that could be the title. 
I want to talk about the source of the songwriting in the group. You know, you are one of those bands that's not afraid to be witty. I don't mean sort of mordantly witty, but there is that kind of tradition in English, Scottish, you know, songwriting. Morrissey is a good example, and I think he was an influence on you. Almost that kind of Noel Coward school of being kind of funny. Where does that come from in your background? It's sort of hard to say. I mean, I'm not sure it's a gift that we have for wit. Maybe it's a gift that we have for honesty and not being afraid to leave it all out there. That is a progression from, say, for instance, you know, the Beatles through the Smiths to us and to other bands. If you draw a line, I think the people, you know, songwriters are more inclined to be very honest and talk about their feelings, talk about what's on their mind, very conversational. Um, whereas, uh, you know, if you go back a little ways, uh, songwriting was more rigorous and there was rules and there was things that it would be cringy to say. At the time when I started songwriting, I didn't have anything to lose and I wanted to tell the world how I felt from my position of pain and anguish. <laughs> but sometimes the, the humour or being able to have a, a, a joke about it and even if the joke is on yourself can be refreshing, it, it can be liberating. But you're known for that level of kind of wit. You know, if you're feeling sinister, go and see a minister. There are a million examples in your music. Were you a particularly literary kid? Was there a lot of reading in your background? I did quite a lot of reading as a later youth. I, I did everything at the wrong time. When I was at university doing science, all I would be doing was reading English literature to the extent where the way that you speak actually changes. I don't know if Stevie ever felt that phenomenon or or yourself felt that phenomenon. I did go through a couple of years where I was reading Jane Austen and uh, you know, French authors and, and the way that you actually talk, you could tell that it was changing because you would be composing sentences the, the same way as these Victorian authors. <laughs> uh, I, and so that, that, that was a period of a couple of years and I, then I actually dropped out of university. I, I didn't do science anymore. I got more interested in the art side. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back with more from Stuart and Stevie from Bell and Sebastian. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Stevie and Stewart. There's a couple of songs I want to ask about, and then we'll, we'll dive into some background. If they're shooting at you, tell me a bit about the genesis of that song. I'm glad that you've asked me about this one. Let me just... Uh try and get the the words of the song in front of me and uh, hope you don't feel that's too feeble not at all so the, the funny thing about if they're shooting at you although i said before it was a new song coming into this i'd had the idea for the tune for a couple of years and i brought it into the studio pretty much the same day as bob and the band he brought in an idea and this was during the time we were doing the eps a couple of years ago so he played me this idea and said, could you come up with words for this? And I realized it had the same rhythm and vibe as the thing I was writing. And I thought, well, this is good. I like that. That's interesting when that happens because you can combine the two in such a way that sometimes something interesting comes from it. I find that the easiest way to combine two ideas, they probably need to have the same rhythmic feel. You can always go from chord to chord and f- figure out a way. I ended up lending a Bob song a section of this song and we wrote words and it became a song called Poor Boy and actually it was uh, was a single but as we approached this LP I had the idea for this song in my head I still had the tune in my head I felt it hadn't been fully exploited so I wrote discrete words I wrote separate words I actually said to the band beforehand if you don't think this is too uh, lazy of me could this be a song could we try this song so maybe like if, if there's Bell and Sebastian fan in listening just now they might be able to reference uh, part of the song will we play you a verse or something from the that would be great one two so I said to you I'm not free I got a mountain falling down on me I got sickness and I've got doubts All the people want to scream and shout I'm so tired, I'm always on my knees And I'm cold, it's always January In this house, 
And on these streets It's so great I can't take it What happened to The life I knew Swept away just give you a little taste that's lovely what was behind the feeling of that song the lyrics of that song it started off very personal and became more general it was me looking out there at stories that were in the news if you look at the news any day there's stories about violent oppression you know like i said i started singing from my own, the way that I was feeling. And then I started writing from the perspective of the things that were happening that I could see happening to other people. And sometimes things that are happening to you, they're quite small compared to the things that are happening to other people. People are dying. People are being tortured. People are in prison. Uh, there's this terrible, terrible things happening. And what do you do? I can't imagine facing those things. But I know, and I've seen it, people have faith. Sometimes that's the only thing that can get them through it. I know faith isn't for everybody, but I've experienced faith, but also I've seen faith at work in other people. And I know that at that point of disaster, the point of even death, that sometimes faith is the only thing that's going to do it. And so that's the second half of the song, really. Now, when you talk about faith, because uh, you're a practicing Buddhist, you're also a, a Christian, do you mean religious faith in that sense or another kind of faith? In the sense it's a religious faith. And although I am a Christian and would say not so much a practicing Buddhist, but obviously very interested in Buddhism. You know, I, I don't mean to be pedantic. If you're a practicing Buddhist, you go uh, for refuge to Buddha. But I'm a Christian, so I go for refuge to, to God. Mm. And uh, so that's who... I feel that I'm talking about in this, that God is actually a voice in the song. Oh, I see. Like many of your songs, it, it starts as a conversation, um, something you're, you announce you're saying to another person. Is that what the two voices are in the song? What happens, it becomes the person that I was thinking about, the oppressed person and God. And God is saying, they might do terrible things to you but I've got your back. This might mean that this experience goes beyond this life. Uh, and I know that that's maybe hard for some people to imagine or some people to take, but I feel like we have to look beyond. And, uh, you know, in, in the song, God is getting this person's back. You talked about sort of seeing things in the world, particularly with this song, that, you know, were terrible things. It doesn't strike me as an angry song, though. Malcolm and I just did a big project with Paul Simon. And I don't think it made the final cut of the project, but I do remember asking him if he ever wrote out of anger. And he said he did, but he works on the song until all the anger is gone. How do you see sort of anger in your songs? Do you see anger underlying this song? No, not so much this song. And it certainly, I mean, to be honest with you, I've had to work on anger issues in my life. Mm -hmm. I think we all have. I think perhaps uh, many of us mellow as we get older, we're constantly trying to become more patient, especially I've had kids 
and having a kid or kids is a lesson in patient acceptance. You're working on your anger constantly when you have kids. So I had more issues when I was younger. Stevie would probably attest to that. <laughs> and, you know, we, it, things could get quite spiky in, in the band and in everyday life. And sometimes that would leak into some songs that I could think about. But in this case, I think the song is looking for a different solution even though terrible things are happening to people and anger seems to be, sometimes seems to be an appropriate response. I think I'm suggesting in the song there's another way. Mm -hmm. I do want to shift to Stevie. And I did want to ask you about Deathbed of My Dreams. It's got a lovely kind of country feel to it. Almost sounds like one of those old kind of Nashville kind yeah. of dreamy slide guitar songs. Can you tell me about that song? Well, sure. Um, Without getting sued, <laughs> it's the first time I wrote a song in a specific way. There was a song in my head which already existed. I basically wrote my own words to someone else's song mm -hmm. and I'd never done that before we got the folk tradition or something. And then I changed the chords under it so that the melody changed and now you can't tell that, you know, that it started off as another tune and I just changed it. But this way it's like a sort of kind of moral dilemma because I actually deliberately used another tune to express myself and then changed it. But maybe you could argue that's the, a kind of folk process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very common in folk and country music. I'm interested, it's got a beautiful, very distinctive sound on the record. Now, your albums are always full of different sounds. The song we just talked about, If They're Shooting At You, which we made sound fairly grim, actually sounds like a, it's like a great Burt Bacharach song. Yeah. Deathbed of My Dreams has a very particular sound. W was it the sound of this other song that attracted you? Uh, Stuart and his songs and our producer, Brian, you know, the, the aforementioned song, If They're Shooting At You, I think they took a long time to get the rhythm of it or, you know, like they spent a lot of time in the studio uh, getting it right. And... I just don't have the patience for that kind of thing. I my my kind of way of working is is that kind of audio verity thing. I just assemble the musicians, play them the song, and whatever will be will be. Or we try and capture something, or you know, usually try and capture it fast. I think like with this song, I think it was in C, and and I just said, look, just play whatever you want. I gave a couple of counters, and it didn't quite happen. Then we had a coffee break, and I said, let's do it in the A. <laughs> And, and then it just kind of came together quite nicely and we, we got it in a few takes. That's certainly my memory of it. And then uh, Brian and I overdubbed a steel guitar, mm -hmm. which Dave played. The way it kind of came out, it did sound like that kind of Nashville 1961 kind of sound. So we, we kind of pushed it that way a little bit. Like a, a Dave, our bass player, he'd done that classic Nashville thing of he doubled his part on, with a Fender 6 guitar along with a kind of upright bass kind of feel. So it has that kind of two basses playing, which is a very Nashville kind of sound. It's a beautiful song. There are a couple of songs on this album. I think maybe particularly the performance of Unnecessary Drama, that it felt like you were a band that was desperate to play live again. It just kind of had more aggression, more kind of, of a live kind of feel were you itching to get back out in front of a, a live audience when you were recording these? I would say no. Personally, really? no. No? Yeah. The key thing about this song is that this song is Bob's song. You know, Bob isn't here to 
tell his side of things. But Bob is, you know, he's very organized and he had a plan for this song. He had a sound, he has everything meticulously planned out. So this is very much his sound. When I am in the studio, I don't care whether I'm in Atlanta or LA or London, you're sort of in a womb. You're in a very safe place. And it's that's why it's a, it's a wonderful place for songs to be born. I like studio stuff I like a studio sound I, I, you know there's a lushness there's a, I like middle of the road 60s and 70s records for me it's complete yin and yang but of course as members of the band we're all ready to support the person whose idea and whose song it is mm-hmm. so we're really happy to I mean Stevie did you suggest the harmonica or did Bob suggest the harmonica? No it was Bob yeah and it was actually an overdub. I didn't record it with the band. I, Bob did all the guitars on it because he's, you know, it was, like I say, there's nothing I can add to it. It's, it's like a military campaign when he does one of his songs. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, it's, it's all so yeah. thought out. And, you know, as, as a guitar player, there's nothing I can add to it. So I just leave him to it. But on the day, you know, it's, we'll come and play harmonica on it. And that's just what came out. What you said about the studio being a womb and, and not thinking about playing live. So I have to ask you if you watched the Beatles documentary, Get Back. Oh, sure, I did. I mean, like, I had a 3D party at my house. (laughs) (laughs) I had food and um, invited interested friends. One of the things that fascinated me about it was that they had been in the womb of the studio so long and they they sort of announced their intention to go play. And there was that just stress between just playing for themselves and making things up and knowing they had to get in front of an audience. Did that trigger any memories or any studio trauma of your own going through that stress now yeah the transition from studio to live is so different you have to relearn all the songs you have to be prepared to get up there and face face the music face the audience and it's such a a different thing and even today i mean you you've kind of inspired us to get our finger out and get moving a little bit and even having a rough play through some of these songs is built a bit of confidence for me because I'm thinking, no, that that tune's okay. That's a tune that that we don't need to. You don't need to hide behind studio trickery. It'll be okay. Could we maybe play a, a verse of unnecessary drama for you? Sure. Even though it's a hard hitting song, I think it's a nice pop song. You know, even when you strip it down. So, so if I can just add that something that occurs to me that I kind of like this one because it's. When someone else writes music for Stuart, it's, it maybe puts them in a position which he would normally wouldn't find himself in. You know, if he was, you know, writing for himself, which he does. Instead of just having a feeling, I thought, what are the words going to be about? I'm going to have to tell a story. I'm going to have to ride on the, the song. And I ended up kind of telling a, a story about my friend. Yeah, and I've, I didn't play guitar on the record. I've played harmonica, so I've, I think I've just learned it. So here it goes. Okay. So one, two, three. I read your letter from before. You've been having so much fun. And is it possible <laughs> you're just telling me to draw me in? There's an array of douchebags lining up to play their stupid parts. And did you ever pause before you gave your love away? This is my life. This is my so-called life This is my life This is my only life And when you came to me that summer You were just a shell 
And you were holding close to mother She was ashen with the strain And there was miles to go yet Miles to build that sister-loving bond And then I figured that the music set your soul ablaze And it's probably not surprising that you're burning through the days And if I had a second encore, I would probably do the same And if the intimacy ever stops, I'll miss your stories, miss your letters Every awkward fumble should be framed Okay, they're going to be holding up their lighters for that one. That's going to be a big, big concert. <laughs> that was, that thank was you, wonderful. Man. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. That's good. I'm glad you're instilling us with confidence. Yeah, I feel that's my job now. I didn't think it was going to be my job. We'll be right back with more from Bell and Sebastian after a quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. 
starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Bruce's conversation with Bell and Sebastian. Here's a performance of their song, Young and Stupid. A one, two, three, four. I was yelling in my sleep. I was crying, feeling weak. Do we have to feel this way? It wasn't like this yesterday. Everything is fine. When you're young and stupid, everything's divine. When you're young and stupid, there's an easy start to things. There's a thrill that beauty brings. Glue together at the hips, stuck together at the lips. Nature was the lead. When you're young and stupid, nurture will impede. When you're young and stupid. I thought you could talk over this, but let's just go into the last verse. Two, three, four. Now we're old with creaking bones. Some with partners, some alone. Some with kids and some with dogs Getting through the nightly slog Flashes in the mind We were young and stupid Keeps us warm at night All our young and stupid Makes us feel delight We were young and stupid Makes you feel regret When you're young and stupid that was fabulous. Well, let me ask you now about the origins of that song. How did that come about? This was like Prophets and Hold. This was like a walk-up song where I was kind of walking into the studio. And it, I might have actually woken up with the tune of this and then sort of just tumbled out of bed and walked into the studio thinking about the tune, coming to the piano and just writing down the, the words. It was the quickest, it was definitely the quickest of all the of all the songs. Something that's to be noted about these sessions was because we were still in a form of lockdown, the band members with kids were on duty. You know, they, they couldn't do full days and they had to work around families. We were so lucky. We actually had a friend staying who was an, our au pair. And so I got to come in every day because I've got kids. And uh, so there was a couple of songs that we actually built up with, with drum machines. And Young and Stupid was one of them, Prophets on Hold, and uh, mostly the, the first side of the record. But, but then, then Richard would come and play over later, and he would add his own uh, inimitable groove to it. The lyrical idea for the song, you know, because you've written so many great songs about being young and being in school and being in those strange kind of in-between times in your life. Is, is this kind of looking back now and thinking I was stupid the whole time and that's kind of a good thing? I think it's a classic Glory Days song. Mm-hmm. The, the song very much exists and was written from the present, i.e. I'm 
in this position now. I'm in a I'm in a dark spot, and I'm looking back on glory days. Most of your glory days, you probably wouldn't really want to go back, but it's rose tinted spectacles, isn't it? And I had a cutoff point, which was probably about 1990 when I started to wise up a little bit, but. My glory days were from 85 to 90 because I had these, um, you know, that I was just you know, running wild with so much energy, so much energy, but not having the wisdom really to know how to use that energy wisely. <laughs> Most people, if they are in a hugely successful pop band, would say that their early days in the band were their glory days. Your glory days predate being in a band? Well, I had a specific th- th- thing that happened to me was in 1989-90, I got sick. Before that time, I was had, I had boundless energy. And then I got this thing called ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, where my energy went off a cliff and it changed my life uh, radically and forever. So it's easier to look beyond that point now when I, when I think of uh, just having that, that great energy. And you were how old when that struck you? Uh, so, uh, so 89, I'll be about 21. Mm-hmm. And so you dropped out of college at that point? Dropped out of everything. I mean, I ended up in hospital. I ended up living back with my parents, which was, you know, talk about stepping back into the, the womb almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. The first part of that was a lot of that just searching for the diagnosis, trying to find out what had happened? I had a good like year and a half when I was going downhill and I'd be seeing doctors and they already, it was actually my mum that said, oh God, I hope it's not that ME because she was a nurse and she knew people oh. with ME. And uh, so she was the first person really to diagnose me. And so it turned out that that's what it was and they, they didn't know much. They couldn't really help me. There wasn't There wasn't much they could do Maybe the next six or seven years, it was a, what I would call my wilderness years. It's almost splitting life up into. And what were those years like? What was your day? You know, when I was back staying with my folks, do you know what a greenhouse is? Do you call it a greenhouse in America? Sure. It's like yeah, a, a glass house. They had a glass house in the, that my dad had built. And um, for most of the year, it was definitely the warmest place. So I used to go in there and sit with the you know, the tomato plants that he was growing and try and just grow. (laughs) I just would, I would sit in an old deck chair with my, you know, with my reading for the week. And, uh, you know, I would vegetate in the morning and try and grow, grow like a baby tomato plant. And then in the afternoon, man, this is taking me back, you know. Uh, it just shows you that the, you, the day was like cut into portions because you only had so much energy. So in the afternoon, uh, I had a friend, Michael. Now, Michael ended, had the same thing that I did. We became friends and we would just, you know, we'd meet up and we'd play Scrabble or we'd, we'd drive around the countryside. We'd try and get some nature. And later on, we'd try to play tennis, you know, so we'd try to build up our energy. Mm-hmm. Did you despair that you would never recover? I think in the first couple of years, there was a shock and then there was a getting used to it. But what happened was that maybe about three years in, I had been sort of going along the bottom. Nothing much has improved. I paid a lot to see a doctor and he suggested, he said he was going to make me better. And he took me for six months and he was giving me all sorts of alternative therapies and medicines. And at the end of the six months, he told me, he couldn't help me anymore. And that, that, that was harsh. I, uh, that was the point where I actually, you know, had a bit of a breakdown. So things got pretty dark for a while. But 
actually, in a sense, it sort of shook me up. Something happened that um, I became almost like so desperate that I tried to change things. I really tried to see more people to get out, to make more of a connection. Michael and I moved back to Glasgow. We were determined. From that point onwards, we, we forced ourselves to do more. Was that coincidental with recovery or do you think that helped? That helped your recovery along? Another catalyst to that was around that time I was seeing a, I went to see a Christian healer. Now, she was the opposite of the the other medical person that I told you about. She promised nothing, but actually gave a lot. And she charged nothing, but gave a lot. Uh, she's amazing. It's just a woman who did it like an amateur in her own house. I wouldn't have to describe myself fully as a Christian at that point, but she said, look, it doesn't matter. It's, this is going to help you. So, you know, she did her energy stuff. Can I ask you, what, what was that that she did? Almost like hands-on healing, except she'd have her hands above me. Mm-hmm. And it, it would the whole thing would take about an hour where she would just be going around and just, she was obviously praying or focusing and I would be thinking the same thing. And I it was a powerful experience, almost like the time went by really quickly, even though I was there for over an hour. And it wasn't until a few weeks afterwards that something broke and I felt that the, the healer had been part of the catalyst. Now, even if all this stuff was only going on in my mind, you can see how something like that could be a catalyst. You hadn't written songs before you were ill, is that right? That's right. Um, You'd played a bit of piano when you were young. I think you had piano lessons. How did the song start? By the time I'd gone to the healer, I had actually started writing songs. So the songs started from, um, this is me back at my parents' house, having got to the bottom of my health, just sitting at the, the piano. I remember very clearly writing my you know, what was to become my first song. I met a, a girl called Kira who was to become my best friend and she also had ME. And I was thinking about her and I, I just I felt like expressing something about her and to her. And I, I just I put my hands on the piano and started singing and that was it. Could you play a few of those chords now? Do you remember what you played? Do you know, I, I, I never, never imagined that we'd be... <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and. You don't I, have to I, tour with this song. So sure, and the song the song's never been recorded and uh the She's so young da 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 I mean, I can't remember the words. I've, I might have them written down somewhere. This is a long time ago. That that's all I can, that's all I can remember. But kind of like that, that was that was enough, you know, to get going. Okay. Uh, how long was it before you wrote a song that became a recorded song? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. When I realized that this was a thing, that maybe I could do this, that even as a hobby, I should try to, it made me feel good. Every song that I did, it would take me a month. It would take me a month and a half. It would take me a long time just to try and wrestle this. So I would say after uh, maybe three years of that, the pace picked up. And uh, I think it helped that I, I picked up a guitar as well because it was easier. I would say it was maybe another three years before there was a song that appeared on a, a BNS record. Mm-hmm. It does sound a little almost 
miraculous, like the famous Oliver Sacks story about his patient who had a stroke and then woke up and just started composing music almost incessantly. <laughs> you have this incredible gift for melody. You write melodies that sound like they should have been written hundreds of years ago, but you, you just thought of them for the first time. And they're very sophisticated. How do you account for that? That's an extremely nice way to put it. Another way to put it, and Stevie, he quite often says, all your songs sound like something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the other side of the coin that even though they're coming out of you, it's quite possibly you are bouncing around melodies that are deep down, you know, inside you. They've gone in when you were very young and that you're you're borrowing little bits, pieces of those. Though music, to generalise, is miraculous. I, I think it is miraculous. I used to think so when I was young and I couldn't write a song and I still, I still think so today. It's the most abstract form of art. It's pulling, it's pulling magic out of, out of thin air. What were you listening to at the time? What, what, were, there, were there singers or were there songs that were inspiring what you were doing? Kind of obviously that seven year period was a long period. And up to that point, I was very current. I used to DJ a lot, so I'd be playing current records. And then, you know, once I got sick, I tended to fall back on older records and also explore the, the 60s and 70s more and also just be more honest about what I loved rather than, you know, trying to be hip and cool. Just, uh, and, and what I loved often was quite middle of the road pop music from my youth. Can you give me an example? Songs like, uh, you know, the one that goes, You walked into my life. I don't know when the next chord is. And now you're taking over. And it's beautiful. Oh, no, it's beautiful. I remember hearing that song on the radio around about that time, not having heard it for years and years and just being aghast, thinking, I know that song's wonderful. I, I know maybe the guy next to me is ignoring it or this guy thinks it's chewing gum for the ears. I think it's wonderful. You know, so you have kids, your fans have kids. Some of those kids have become fans. Where do you sort of place your own music in the, in the kind of firmament? That's an interesting question. Do you simply produce music because you have to and because you love doing it and you're, you're happy with just that process? Or do you still ache, you know, to be a pop star, to be, you know, uh, every generation throws a, you know, a singer up the pop chart as Paul Simon wrote? Because I think there's, there is always that thing you forget that we're all ambitious little buggers and all these people that you mentioned and all the, your peers and the people, all the greats that came before you, most of them would be nothing if they didn't have a, a relationship with uh, the public. Partly the reason we haven't made an album for so long, quite frankly, is because after we did the last one, it didn't feel worth it anymore. It didn't feel like anybody was listening, you know, maybe like uh, some of our hardcore audience. So that's me being pretty honest with you. Maybe that's not the kind of thing that folk want to hear. But if the music isn't connecting with people anymore, I would rather do something that really gets me going. You know, I'd rather go back and make another film, write a book, try something new. I'm a creative person and the band is full of creative people. Uh, there's no there's no law that says band must do album tour, album tour until death. Right. It, was it just sales or downloads or you, you just didn't feel it was connecting somehow? 
I think maybe the last record didn't connect so well and that maybe is just a, a general feeling. I mean, the band's been going for, you know, at that point, the band had been going for, for some time. You know, people want the new thing. We'll see what happens with this record. Okay. Well, I hope great things happen with this record because it's a great record and everybody should listen to it. And everybody should go out and clap along when you play Unnecessary Drama live. You definitely delve down there. There's some things that uh, I haven't thought about for years and years, so... <laughs> As therapists say, we'll pick that up again next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so All much. Right. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks to Bell and Sebastian for talking to us about their latest album and about their career. To hear more of our favorite Bell and Sebastian songs, check out the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.